0: Imagine having so much love for a film that you stake out a video store in the dead of winter just so you could be the first person to rent the VHS and bring it home and illegally dub it. That's the kind of heart today's guest and I have for this 1988 masterpiece. But let's be clear, our 40-plus year friendship goes way beyond film piracy, although we certainly dubbed our fair share of movies in the mid-80s. I met this gentleman in fifth grade. I had just moved to Bethel, Connecticut. I was the new kid in town, didn't really know anybody. He quickly befriended me and thus began a lifelong friendship, sleepovers, summer jobs, graduations, Grimaldi's in Brooklyn. He likes his pizza well done, by the way. We've been there for one another through the best of times and some of the worst. I think I still know his childhood phone number. For years, we lived on opposite coasts, but then finally had the opportunity to reside in Manhattan at the same time in the early thousands, and just so happened to be together in the Bronx to watch the Yankees clinch it in 2009. And now we're back on opposite coasts, navigating a three hour time difference. Through it all, our common language has always been film, and maybe fantasy football. Whenever we speak, the conversation invariably turns to movies. He and I have seen so many films together, it's hard to keep track. I'm pretty sure he introduced me to A Clockwork Orange, and I returned a favor with Reservoir Dogs. So it surprises no one when I say that he has been inquiring about when I would have him on this show. He was not happy that he missed out on Reservoir Dogs. He's been pushing me to discuss planes, trains, and automobiles, which honestly would have been a terrific choice. We love that film. But I told him to sit tight, that I wanted to close out the year with a different holiday classic that just so happens to be one of the greatest action films ever made. The film is Die Hard, my guest is Steve Cozzolino, and this is backed by Popular Demand. if we hear some tunes? Hey, yeah, that'll
1: work. Is there any Christmas music? Yes, yeah. Christmas music. It was December 24th on Hollis the Dark When I seen a man chilling with his dog at the park I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear Looked at his dog
0: Chief, we are both bringing it tonight. So what I mean by that is I've got my John McClain... And Hans Gruber uh, Funko Pop Toys that my brother gave me several years ago. Every year he gives me one of these for usually for Christmas or a birthday. And they sit on my, uh, my office desk. And I've got a bunch of others that you can't see, awesome. including uh, Austin Powers and um, Prince Akeem from Coming to America. But these are the two diehard ones. <laughs> They're awesome, dude. You gotta love it, man. You gotta love Gruber. God. So cool. It's the, it's the best, the details of these things are, are the best, Um, but you're wearing something. Tell it, tell everybody what you're wearing right now. Dude, my Adidas Christmas
1: and Hollis. This is Christmas music as our guy would say, right? That's uh that's the song, man. We were watching that movie as soon as they drive in and that, you know, our guy's with McLean and it's like, you hear that song and you're like, wow, that's cool. So I fell in love with that song. First time I heard it in the movie and I have the shirt, I wear it. Every Christmas, man. And I saw your brother, your brother Times Square for his birthday a few weeks back, and I was wearing it.
0: It's a fantastic shirt. It looks like you, it may have cost you a couple of bucks, too. So before I introduce you, I'm going to hit you with a question, um, and it's about that song. So mm-hmm. where where does Christmas and Hollis rank in all-time movie needle drops? You know, like, you know, in terms of, like, at least, at least maybe in the 80s, w- would you put that high on the list as far as, like, moments in movies where music just kind of was the perfect perfect track that's a tough question for me it is i mean for me it
1: just just affected me because the first time i heard that and it's like december 24th as soon as that rock rap is laid down because it is it's christmas eve december 24th and that just sets the tone that's the setting then it goes down and i actually you know that the feel of that song like it's Christmas but then it's like there's an edge to it and you're like something's going down man this is special already so
0: I agree like it's funny like the movie it's it, it feels oddly out of place in that film in the movie because you know you know McLean gets off the plane and he's in the car with Argyle and they're talking they're having a conversation about his wife and their his problematic marriage and then all of a sudden it, it's kind of jarring where he you know Argyle ple- presses the music and all of a sudden you hear it and it's just sort of It kind of takes you out of that moment for a minute, but in a good way. And then all of a sudden the camera kind of pulls back and you see the car pulling up to Nakatomi and beautifully done the way they put that music in there. And it's, what does it play for maybe 20 seconds or something, but it's, it's, it's beautifully done. Uh, You know, hats off to everybody that made that decision. So listen, I am running on fumes tonight. Um, We're going to push through. I am not a hundred percent. I've got some sort of flu thing. It's not the flu officially, but, um, but, you know, you and I wanted to get this episode in before the end of the year, obviously, the tie to Christmas. So uh, thrilled that you're here. Um, welcome, Steve Cosolino, the chief. We both call one another chief. For those listening, we've done this for a really long time. It's a reference to Chief Bromden from one of our very favorite movies, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, and on that note, Steve, you and I do need to do an episode about Cuckoo's Nest. And that is on my short list. for next year um say hi introduce yourself tell everybody what you do where are you calling from and well thanks dennis it's it's great to be on here chief man it's an honor to be on your podcast
1: and you know i'm a fan and a longtime friend uh coming in from new york you know we had a lot of times here in the the city together and uh, a lot of moments that we get into about movie our movie experiences working together and um it's just uh Many amazing memories is a long time friendship. Uh, what I do during the day, I'm a designer, product designer. So I uh, I design products that uh, basically you have in your home that you plug in or don't plug in, and uh, it's you know it's how they work, how they look, and how they're made. That's what I do. I design products, and I've had the good fortune of designing uh, quite a few well-known products, iconic products, Method soap bottles, right? When I ever go to a f- friend's home or family member's home, Method soap bottles are on the counter in the kitchen and bathroom. Uh, th- that's cool. Uh, one of the most well-known products, though, that I designed, I call it my diehard product. It's like I work in a large team for it. My mother always says I invented it. It's like her friends say, you invented the Swiffer? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'd be a lot wealthier if I invented the Swiffer, but... I was a part of a large engineering and design and development team for the Swiffer. And the Swiffer, one of a kind, man, It's the, it was the first product of its kind. And it defined its own category. It provided hands on your knees, scrubbing results with the ease of a mop. So there was nothing else ever like it before and nothing else ever like it since. So it was truly game changing, just like Die Hard.
0: You're your own boss. You run your own studio. It's Cosolino Studio, right? Yep. It is impressive because you've shared with me through the years a lot of the different products that you've designed. I've seen your studio. I've seen all the, all the renderings that you do. You're a talented guy. You're being Thanks. you're being kind of uh, – you're, you're downplaying it right now, which is kind of nice. But um, you have been – you're so noted that you've actually been on a TV show the last couple of years. Tell everybody a little bit about the show that you've been on. It's called America by Design. First started with New York by Design. So America by Design is on CBS
1: Saturday nights. Uh, it's going on its fourth – actually, we're working on the fourth season – uh, season three just uh, was uh, live streaming and then it streamed um, the, in the fall and it's going on TV on CBS again Saturday nights on the East coast and West coast uh, in February of okay. the new year. So you'll see it in LA, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Austin, uh, throughout some of the major cities throughout the U S and it's a show. It's basically, I'm a design judge and, uh, a presenter on the show, and it's basically American Idol meets Shark Tank. So it's not about raising money or funds, but basically you have like six, five or six stories on each episode, and they're innovation stories. It's about something innovative, a design. It doesn't have to be a product. It could be a design, a service, an interface, educational design, could be furniture, anything, right? And packaging could be anything, but uh, it's usually a contributive uh, design uh, or innovation, meaning that it contributes to the environment or our daily lives in a positive way. And uh, some even save the planet and, and you know, save on water, uh, energy. Uh, it's, it's really an interesting show, but it's really doing a great job of educating the general public about the process of design, uh, value of design, and the power of design. So I, I'm happy to be part of it. So there's usually about six episodes in a season, so there's about 30 different innovation stories. We take you through those each episode. And then there's you know one or two winners from each show, each uh, episode and segment. And then there's a final show with the top 10. And then there's an overall winner. And people can vote, too, on it. And there's an online segment. So it's, it's very cool. And uh, people can have the People's Choice Awards. They can have a chance to vote as well. Uh, it's been fun. It's been a great ride.
0: Yeah, I know. And you've been great on it. And I've seen a bunch of the episodes. We're not going to be saving the world um, or doing anything remotely important like that tonight on this episode. So we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about, as you said a few minutes ago, one of our very favorite movies, Die Hard. Um, I got to tell you, Steve, a lot of folks are super jealous that um, you're doing this movie tonight because I, when I told a few other people that we were doing Die Hard there was there were some groans. I mean, so you you may get some hate mail.
1: Bring on the hate, man. That's all good. <laughs> <laughs> man, no one's argued as much over Die Hard as you and I have over the last handful of decades.
0: It's funny, you're right, because we we love the movie so much. It's a I mean it's one of our favorite very joint favorite movies we've ever had in our, our life together, but we argue about it constantly. We're <laughs> gonna get into some of that argument in, in a little bit, but let's not spoil that. Why don't you tell everybody, because I know you like to tell the story, tell everybody how you and I met. Fifth grade, probably, right? If I had to guess, yep. what year was that roughly you know better than me? That would have been uh eighty-one. Eighty 1981,
1: man. Okay, so we were like ten, ten, eleven, and We're on the playground and uh, I was, I think Salvino was picking one team. I was going against him. I was picking the other team for tackle football uh, during recess. So already I was behind because he was a much better athlete. And then he got the first pick and then it's like, I get a pick, he gets a pick. And I'm like, my team's weaker, man. We suck. And then no one knew you. No one was picking. You were the new kid. I'm like, but you were wearing this. Kick-ass, Lyle Alzado, number seventy-seven, orange jersey, Alzado Denver Broncos jersey, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. But I'm like, he's like, he's on your team. I'm like, I don't want that. Can he? He? I don't know if he could play because I didn't know you, right? And I said, I don't know if he could play. And then you go, I can play. I'm good. And I said, man, that dude. <laughs> so he's got that kid's got some attitude. I'll take it. I'll take him on my team He's got some attitude. So, hey, man, you talked the talk and you played well, and then. Last thing you know, we are walking off the field together in deep conversation, and the rest is history.
0: Yeah, um, and we – I did play well. And we – and listen, we ended up living about two blocks from each other. I mean, close enough that it was a a quick walk uh, through the woods in in Connecticut. But um, a a minute on the jersey, so – because I was, uh, my brother was texting me something. He was texting uh, Malone and I something the other day, where it was a picture of me wearing. I guess at the time it would have been a Baltimore Colts jersey around that same time frame. This was back when I was still living in Long Island before Connecticut. But so my mom knew that my brother and I were big fans of the J.C. Penney's catalog. I'm not sure if you remember that, Chief, but like sure. back then, you, you know, there was no internet. Obviously, in the late '70s, so everything you had to buy was through this catalog. And J.C. Penney's had this deal with the NFL where they sold all the different team jerseys. Obviously. The jerseys looked nothing like, you know, the nice ones that people wear today, but certainly like they were knockoffs and like ones that little kids would really like. And for whatever reason, I ended up having a bunch of different teams. I think over the years I had the Colts. I had, um, I do believe I had a Steelers Jersey at one point. I had a Patriots Jersey at one point. And to your point, I had a Denver Broncos Jersey. Now, listen, I, you know, nothing against Denver, but Denver was not my team. I was a Cowboys fan and I always have been, I always will be. But uh, for whatever reason I wore the uh, Lyle Alzado jersey, to school. And, uh, maybe that was the catalyst for the friendship. I'm not sure, dude, I don't know, but you know, you know, me being a diehard Steelers fan
1: and you diehard Cowboys fan, we never let that come between our friendship, but man, that was
0: some bitter, bitter rivalries there. So listen, I want to switch into one of the debates. One of the big debates about Die Hard is, uh, is it a Christmas movie? Now, I'm pretty sure I know where you stand on this because every freaking Christmas, you usually text me at some point, either on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and you send me a screenshot of the movie. And it's usually it's dark and you're probably watching it at midnight because you're a late night guy. But uh, mm-hmm. how, how many years now have you been watching Die Hard th- during the holidays? Oh gosh, it's got to be two decades, man, over 20 years, honestly. Easy,
1: easy 20 years could be 25 years.
0: The reason why people debate about this is that this long debate between Bruce Willis and the film's director, John McTiernan, McTiernan thinks without question that it is a Christmas movie, and Bruce Willis does not. Um, Bruce has said that it's a summer action movie with some resonance due to when it takes place, but that it is not a Christmas movie. You disagree, I disagree. McTiernan disagrees, and clearly the studio obviously disagrees. But have you do you know anybody that actually thinks that it's not a Christmas movie? Uh, I don't. But I mean, I see stuff on Twitter and social media that
1: people allude to it all the time. It is an argument, but the data proves that it's whenever they do polls and stuff, even on Twitter, the polls are just like 75% that it is a Christmas movie. I mean, look, you got to agree with the director, but there's many reasons that it's a Christmas movie, I think. But uh, for sure, I'm a data guy. So if the numbers prove it, then that's number one.
0: I would even add Lethal Weapon to that list as well. That that's another Christmas movie. First off, if people argue that it's Die Hard is not a Christmas movie and it doesn't deserve to be on that list. Why not? Why
1: is it because there's not a man in a big red suit or a talking snowman or you know reindeer that fly? No, I mean you don't have to have those Christmas elements, right? The whole fact for Die Hard. That it takes place on Christmas Eve. I mean, if there's no Christmas, there's no movie, right? There's no reason for McLean to fly and see his family and his wife. There's no Nakatomi, there's no party, there's no Takaji. It's like there's nothing. And, and like that's the main reason. It's unusual to have an office party, I think, on actually Christmas Eve, but hey, <laughs> we'll let that go. I mean, it's a Christmas Eve party. And then, you know, that's the whole setting and framework of the movie. So to me, that's number one and why it's a Christmas movie. And then I think the overall theme, you know, one of the biggest themes is redemption, right? We talk about how McClain is redemption with him trying to be redeemed in the eyes of his wife, Holly, uh, Al, his buddy the cop is redeemed at the end when he kills Carl, you know, it's a wonderful life. George bailey that's about redemption. And by the way, so it's, it's a wonderful life. It's probably my favorite Christmas movie. Die Hard is my favorite action movie of all time. But if I was to say gun to my head, Christmas movie. I love It's a wonderful life, you know, tear up every time. And then um, a Christmas Carol, right? Scrooge. I mean, these are Scrooge. It's all about redemption for him too. So it's a powerful Christmas message and theme. Uh, so I think that's another main reason why die hard is a Christmas movie. Plus it has the Christmas music, right? We talked about Christmas and Hollis, but there's white Christmas, let it snow. Oh, to joy. There's just a lot of Christmas uh, elements in it too, right? The ho, ho, ho. I have a machine gun season greetings tape yeah. the, on his back in the end. I mean, there's just so much, uh, that uh, really ties into Christmas, so
0: uh, it,
1: it's uh, it's the perfect Christmas movie for me.
0: There's a reason I chose you for Die Hard, and you know the people that have like reached out to me that are jealous about it. I, I tried to explain to them why I chose my lifelong best friend because there's a lot of film history that you and I have shared together. So I want to I want to go back a little bit, and I touched on this in a recent episode that I did with Jason Thompson when we talked about First Blood because First Blood was the very first um, VHS cassette that. My family and I, you know, rented I guess back in like 1983 when whenever that movie came out on VHS and we had our first VCR. The VCR sort of changed my life. I liked film. I was only, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 when we got our first VCR, so I wasn't that wasn't that old yet, but I liked movies, but I wouldn't say that I was really into film as much before the VCR arrived. But when it arrived, it sort of like opened my eyes and all of a sudden we were going down to these video stores and the video connection downtown and we were like I'd go and in, go into the store and I'd see this wall with all these cassette cases, right. And all the boxes, the box marts mm-hmm. of all these movies. And like, I just found the whole concept fascinating that you could pay four bucks or whatever it was at the time. And they put this cassette in this case and you got to take it home and you got to watch it as opposed to going to the theater and watching it, which my family definitely liked to do. But like VCRs sort of blew me away and, and VHS blew me away and I would even go as far as to say that VCR and VHS sort of set the path of my career because Mm -hmm. I got fascinated by the posters that you would see in the video store. I got fascinated by the box art, as I mentioned, and all these things sort of got me into the the notion of how movies were advertised. I liked the trailers that some of these cassettes had. And and obviously you, you see all that stuff when you went to the theater too. So that planted the seed for me in terms of how, um i really got into movies after that so you and i had that sort of th- that bond because we started i guess we started taping movies illegally bootlegging movies, I guess, right around this time frame. I would say, what would you say? Like 83, 84?
1: Definitely uh, before high school, even just right before high school or freshman. Yeah, definitely before high school. So mid eighties.
0: We would lay two VCRs next to each other. We had cables running across the back of the TV. Like one was going into one machine, one was coming, coming out of the other machine. And basically we played the rented cassette from the video store in one VCR and we put it in a blank cassette in the other and you p- hit play and you hit record and then you recorded the movie and then we would do this over and over again. I would record it for myself. You would record it for yourself. I'm going to give you credits that it was your idea. I think you somehow figured the
1: technology. I'm not sure how you came across that <laughs> technology. I'll give you the credit because I don't recall coming up
0: with that. I would have probably remembered that. I, I will say, look, all we need to do is buy some AV cables. I think what happened was, because I wasn't allowed to necessarily do any of the dubbing at my house, because we only had one VCR. I mean, this was the early 80s. Nobody had multiple VCRs. So I think what happened was, is that your, for whatever reason, your grandfather let you borrow his VCR. Is that, is that correct? This is the way it happened. Like, I don't recall who came up with the idea. I think
1: I'm going to give you, it was your idea. Somehow you came across the technology. We bought the AV cup, you know, basically the cables, the AV cables, the audio video cables. And we said, okay, easy. Connect the end to the out, into the, the out. Easy. Um, you brought yours over. We started first with someone bringing theirs over. And I pretty much remember, you recall, you bringing your HS over to my, you know, my VCR, your VCR over to my house. And then we would connect. And I think the first movie, I don't know if it was Red Dawn or Someone around that. I remember doing a couple movies specifically Red Dawn, Ghostbusters, First Blood. And we'd like, okay, we'd have to watch them twice because we have to dub it once for you and, and once for me. <laughs> I, I don't even think that. I think it's illegal once you sell it, right? We'd always have that warning. But if you don't go for resale, I'm not sure if that's truly illegal. That's
0: uh, and I don't think anybody you know, was going to knock on the door for you and I in Bethel, Connecticut, at, at, at 13 years old, uh, recording Red Dawn. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I do I do recall most of the taping was that done at your house because you had your grandfather's VCR. I think maybe he was away for the winter or something. But there was a reason why you had the other VCR because my dad wasn't going to let me take his VCR to your house. I know that for a fact. So okay. I know that we I, I always came to your house by and large. Or you brought your grandfather's VCR to my house and we did the, the taping at my house. There would be nights where we would tape Ghostbusters like three times because we did it for you. We did it for me. And then I think you probably did it for your grandfather because he was giving us the loaner and you probably <laughs> needed to build out his yeah. library as well. But like this, this was crazy. I mean, like I, I, I remember asking my mom, like she had to go to like Bradley's or Caldor and keep buying videotapes for me. And she's like, I just got you a bunch of tapes. I'm like, but I've used them already. And like, yeah. this is like, I really started building out this library and as did you, I mean, this, this was the early days of VHS where like, you know, you were either taping stuff off TV or you were doing these bootlegs that you and I were doing. So here was the problem. And I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but like there was uh, the studios, they put this technology in some of the cassettes. Now, not every studio did this, but there were a couple and they, they used this technology called Macrovision. And what it what it did was when you were trying to do what you and I were doing, it would actually make it really hard to record the movie, wh- where like the color would go in and out. Remember how it used to get like really dark, and it would get bright again, and it would get dark again. So like it was like this copyright protection technology that they they used in the videotape that allowed idiots like us to not do it.
1: How do we get past that? I don't recall that actually, but
0: uh... oh, I definitely recall that. Well, you didn't get past it. Basically, the issue was like if if the movie had that. You were, you were out of luck and you just weren't going to get a good transfer. We still recorded it because we felt like you, you know having a bad version of Red Dawn was better than no version of Red Dawn, right? <laughs> but not every studio did it. But you and I got smart to the, to the fact that we sort of knew which ones tended to do that so we would not try to tape those movies because we knew we were going to get jammed up. I forgot a lot about that, those details, but I do
1: remember this. Do you remember the time we did Ghostbusters? And I did it like three times and one your copy, you... Brought it home. The sound was off. I guess the cable wasn't connected <laughs> properly in the video. And so the sound was off. We had to redo it. I don't know if you remember that. And then we learned originally, I think we were greedy. We we're doing like two or three movies per VHS tape so that you use the six hours on EP. But then we said, let's just go SP, one movie for cassette, high quality, next level. Then we took the whole uh, cover to the next level with artwork, right? We do our own title and then cover art. It was. Uh, quite the production, very cool.
0: DVDs didn't come out until like 1999. So I think people need to understand cuz like obviously it's a very different world today. But back in like 83 through like 99, that's a sh- that's a long stretch of time. That is 16 years where all you had was VHS, right? So while you and I were younger and we we sort of obviously outgrew Recording within reason, we didn't tape nearly as many movies as we got older. But like, I do feel like that's all we had. So like, if we wanted to build out a library, that's all you could do. The reason we stopped we went to college,
1: right? So we weren't together. I mean, if we went to college together, we'd be done movies in college, I'm sure.
0: I got a job at the movie theater, the Translux Ciné, in the fall of '87. Yeah. Now, I remember you and I had just worked together that prior summer at Stop and Shop, which we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, but we, you and I worked at the bakery, so we had a summer job together, but later that, that fall, I wasn't allowed to work during the school year. So, um, Mike Burgess, who was one of our, our buddies from at the time, he got a job at the Cine. I want to say like that September. And I remember he kept calling me, kept telling me, he's like, Denny, you got to get a job at this theater. It's the greatest job in the world. You don't do anything. He's like, you rip tickets and you know, you work in the movies that the popcorn stand for a little bit and you sell some soda, but you really just don't do anything. And I was like, Mike, I don't think my dad's going to let me get a job. So anyway, Mike kept pressing. He kept pressing. So I finally went to my dad. I was like, hey, what are your thoughts about me getting a job on the weekends? And he said yes. And so such began my, my career at the Translux Cine. I think it was Burgess was one. I think O'Sullivan was two. And then I was number three. I think like maybe Mark Rapella came. A little bit after that, but I worked Friday through Sunday. When did you when did you get there? Well let me tell you one thing. The one reason you got that job, dude,
1: Chief, was because your dad can get in the movies for free. <laughs> you know Raji. As soon as he said, Hey, I can get in the movies for free, man, okay, you go for it. I was already working at Walden Books, I think the bookstore. I think I came in much later. Um, you guys were already from candy
0: vendor to doing usher, and, and I think when you started ushering, that's when I came in as a candy vendor. It got to a place where, like all of us that were in our class, a lot of us worked at the cine. I mean, not everybody, obviously. People worked at Bethel Food. People worked at you know English Drug. There were those places in town that everybody sort of congregated, but the cine became one of those spots that if you lived in our our part of town, a lot of us ended up getting a job there. So that brings me to the Palace Theaters, Chief. That was the Translux Theater that was on Main Street. And that's where a lot of the crappy action and horror movies played throughout our youth, right? So this was a this was the theater where you would see Jason or Freddie. I believe you and I saw a child's play. Our first Chucky experience was at the, at, at the Palace. And that is where Die Hard played. Did we see that together or no? The way we saw Die Hard... And I know it specifically because Die Hard is one of those movies that's like you remember where you saw it,
1: the moment, the time when you saw it. I don't have a lot of those memories, but it's like The Matrix. When you saw The Matrix, you know where you are. Pulp Fiction, I will never forget when I saw it. Pulp Fiction in the theater. I knew exactly where I was. Star Wars, same thing as a kid. I barely remember my childhood at six, seven, eight. but I remember staying standing online and seeing that marquee with the sand people. And like, what is that? And like that, or the whole experience of Star Wars. So Die Hard, I'll never forget. We saw it on a time I think it was a Friday night, uh, like late 11 o'clock because it was a screening. So no one else was in the th- auditorium. You know, we got the chance to screen since we were an employee, we got a chance to screen these movies when they were screening them to see how the, the film looked before they showed the general po- population, right? The general public. So we, We saw that. I remember it's probably all five of us. It was you, me, Burgess, Rappella, O'Sullivan. I'm guessing the five of us. We went to the palace and, and alone just watched the screening while there. Whoever was the manager there was screening the film. And we, I mean, there may have been other palace employees there. I can't remember, but we loved it, you know, and I'll never forget seeing it. Uh, it was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. And I'll never forget that, uh, that night uh, seeing it. I felt like you guys had seen the movie before me though. And you guys were like, wait till you see this. Cause you were actually seeing it. It's like,
0: you've said that to me before. And I know that Fox had done a sneak preview of that movie the week before it officially opened. So maybe there was a possibility that I saw that sneak preview publicly. You were like, wait till you see this. You're not
1: going to believe it. Just like you and Burge had seen it. Two of you, not all of us, not all fight. Like, Rapel and I hadn't seen it. And uh, it just, you know, Blew like anyone seen it for the first time just blew us away in 1988.
0: I want to say that there was like a Friday the 13th movie that had come out that spring. Maybe it was like part seven or something. Um, the New Blood, I think, was that same spring. It was '88. I want to say I, I'd have to go back and look at the dates, but I remember when we went to go see that that they had a trailer for Die Hard, and you and I were in this like pack theater. There were a lot of folks, and and I remember when they first showed Bruce Willis. In this trailer for this movie, people started laughing. I guess that was a reaction that um, the studio picked up from with theater chains all around the country when they were starting to advertise Die Hard in advance. People didn't understand why there was this action movie that was coming out with Bruce Willis. He was the star of Moonlighting with civil Shepherd. He was a comedian, a comic actor. He was making this big jump into movies and like why he had already done a movie called Blind Date, which was a comedy. But like, why is he doing this big budget action thing? And like, I think Fox started panicking and they were like, wow, this this is not the reaction we wanted. I remember that. I remember hearing people laugh and I didn't laugh. I thought the movie looked pretty good, but I wasn't I you know hadn't seen it yet. This was just a trailer. But they were so worried about that, that they originally had done all the, the posters and the, and the newspaper ads all featured the building. It did not feature Bruce Willis's face whatsoever. So the original marketing creative was not going to include Bruce Willis on any. And then I guess when they did these sneak previews and I guess the movie was started testing really well, people really liked it. That's when Fox realized they might've had something special on their hands. And that's when they redid the poster and they redid the newspaper as, and they put Bruce Willis's face in there, but can you imagine if there was a point in time when this movie was going to get marketed <laughs> without Bruce Willis? Now, I recall that that uh, you know because
1: Moonlighting. I mean, I've been watching Moonlighting as a kid. There was no connection with Bruce Willis as an action hero, so he wasn't a Schwarzenegger, right, or, or uh, Stallone.
0: So the VHS of Die Hard, it was released on videotape. In late January of 1989, tell our listeners what you and I did, going back to this notion of that we were taping movies in that context. Right.
1: Well, first of all, I have to realize there was no internet or anything close to it, right? And there's no blockbuster video yet, right? There's no Netflix, let alone the Netflix Netflix we know today. Nothing, right? So it's like there's no internet. So you don't know it. The only reason we knew a movie was coming out, there must have been either a billboard, like a little billboard there in, in the stoppage, like super stop and shop had a video store in the front rental place. Right. Cause that's all you do. We rent videos. And that was exploding at the time. Cause you could all of a sudden rent these VHS tapes. Right. And they must've just had it up there on the marquee that we always would look what the new movies are coming. They would always give it a month or two, you know, here's our uh, pre-release uh, just to give you a, you know, a heads up of when the movie's actually coming out. Cause it's not like you can see it anywhere else. And, um, I remember when we first saw Die Hard was coming out, we couldn't believe it. We we're so psyched! It's like this is like top of the list to dub, and that's why we always looked. We wanted to get, we wanted to get the move, the movies first and foremost before somebody else rented them and mucked them up on their own via uh, VCR at home. <laughs> I knew right? you were
0: gonna say that. I was waiting for that.
1: Yeah, because you didn't want a dirty copy, man. As soon as you're trying to dub this thing and all of a sudden it's like ah, cuts and it and people destroy it, they don't care, right? So, and they are, it's delicate. It's not like VHS tapes were kind of delicate at the time, right? So, we wanted the pristine virgin copy of Die Hard. So we saw the data was coming out. We knew it was delivered by UPS. We actually asked the day before the clerk there, and they said, yeah, it gets delivered by UPS. Come tomorrow, it'll be here by, like, 11 a.m. or whenever so around noon. So, like, okay. So we got there early. We were anxious at 10 a.m., no Die Hard. Then it's like, well, when's it going to be here? So they said the UPS hasn't arrived yet. So we literally staked it out across the street at McDonald's. We must have got a bite at McDonald's, and we just – washed and staked out the super stop and shop waiting for the ups driver
0: <laughs> and that's exactly what happened we, we we saw the truck pull in and we we saw it we were like there it is there's the truck and we finished our mcnuggets we drove across the street across route six right stop and shop and we went in there and, and i think i even remember like the guy was still like taking Die Hard out of like the big brown yeah. box that it came in, and he was getting it all like ready to go, like ready for rent. Yeah, we had to wait from the unbox it. to like, just hold on, we gotta unbox it, we gotta label it, we gotta get the you know the
1: uh, barcode on it, and and also, but we yeah uh, we got the newest of new copies, so.
0: We literally, for everybody in the greater Danbury area, we had the very first copy of Die Hard on VHS, at least for that with the one that was being rented at Stop and Shop. By the way, that Stop and Shop was a big deal. Remember when that store opened? It was like it opened like in the mid 80s. My family always shopped at Pathmark. And then all of a sudden, Super Stop and Shop opens up down the street. And this place had a bakery. It had a video store. It had a bank. It had a had hot soups that you can get when you walk in, which my dad was really excited about. That place was like the shit. Remember that? Yeah, it's still
1: there. McDonald's is still there. By the way, the palace is still there. I drove by that not too long ago. Not that it's still operating, but the marquee and the sign of the palace is still out there in downtown Danbury. But uh, yeah, it's amazing, man. That's, uh, That's a vivid childhood memory still. So all those years later.
0: It's the only movie in my entire life that I can think of that I actually staked out you know a video store to be the first person in line to get the cassette. I don't think I had ever done that previously with you or anybody else or my brother. I don't think I've it was ever a done a commitment, that. man. That was a commitment of like we it was a 3-4 hour ordeal. I mean, we were there hours waiting. Let's talk about Die Hard. Let's do some quick facts before you and I pivot into like why this movie means so much to us, but directed by John McTiernan. Um, which who we're going to talk about a little bit later, but he had, he had just done Predator, um, the year before that. And, uh, he did, he had a great run there from 87 through 90 where he did Predator, which is a great, great action movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Then he did Die Hard and then he did The Hunt for Red October. And that's a, that's a pretty outstanding trifecta Mm -hmm. of movies that not many directors can, can lay claim to. Written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza, it's based on the novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. And Chief, I did this research recently that that book is a sequel to a 1968 film called The Detective starring Frank Sinatra. And I guess the, the, the character that he played in that film was the main character in the book that Die Hard was based on. Did you know that? I did not know that. I did
1: come across that. I will tell you one cool nugget, though uh, on its way, that book, I decided to go ahead, pull a trigger and I ordered it on Amazon. So I am getting nothing last forever next week and we'll be reading it.
0: That's amazing. You bought that book. That's incredible. And by
1: the way, I'm interested in reading the book because it is similar. Obviously the movie's based off. So it's very similar. Uh, the main character goes to, uh, Christmas party, but there's nuances to it that are very different from Die
0: Hard. I'm going to have to borrow that book when you're done with it, so read, read it quickly. <laughs> I love that you bought that. Um, the movie was budgeted at $28 million. It was released on July 20th, 1988. Ironically, same weekend as another film that you and I love, Midnight Run, came out the same weekend as Die Hard. Hmm. And it ended up grossing worldwide $142 million. It was the seventh highest grossing film of the year. Um, the only movies that um, beat Die Hard were Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Coming to America, which was number two. I had no idea that Coming to America did that well. I knew it did well. I didn't realize it did that well, that it was number two. Good Morning Vietnam, Big, Crocodile Dundee 2, which was a disaster, and Three Men and a Baby. Die Hard was nominated for four Academy Awards, all, all tech ones. Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Sound Effects Editing. It was filmed at Fox Plaza in Century City, which is not too far from where I live out here in L.A., The Nakatomi Tower was actually the home to Fox's corporate offices. Steve, when I was at National Geographic five or six years ago, we were owned by Fox. So a lot of the time I had to go out to L.A. for various meetings to meet with producers and marketing folks and whatnot. And a lot of my meetings were on the lot where, you know, 20th Century Fox Studios are. So basically the studio is here and Nakatomi Tower is like adjacent to the studio. It's this big, giant high rise that you can see from miles away. Um, and in t- 2016, I had a meeting in Nakatomi and I think I sent you a photo, probably did a selfie on my walk into the building, but, um, I was geeking out big time that day when I actually had a meeting on one of the floors in Nakatomi. I've never been in there since, but I was in there once. Isn't that awesome? You you've taken quite a few photos when you're nearby and sent it to me. So, uh, I always enjoy that. Bruce Willis was paid $5 million to play John McClain. I don't really remember this back in the day when you and I were 17, but I guess at that point it was a huge, huge salary that ended up being a little bit controversial because not, not many, not many actors commanded that kind of pay to to be in a film like this, but basically they worked around his schedule on, on moonlighting because he was shooting moonlighting during the day. So they were in, they ended up trying to shoot most of Die Hard when he was available at night. And they, they, they integrated the two, the two productions together so they can get him doing both at the same time. A couple of other actors that were of note that were once considered to play uh, John McClane, Richard Gere, Sylvester Stallone, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Schwarzenegger. I actually think the movie was originally first designed to be a Schwarzenegger vehicle. Clint Eastwood, Robert De Niro, Charles Bronson, Don Johnson, Burt Reynolds, and Michael Madsen, a.k.a. Mr. Blonde, were all (laughs) once considered to play John McClane. Quite a list. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A couple of cool things here, but one, it's funny. I think two of the actors are mentioned like referenced in the movie, right? Stallone with Rambo when it's re- he's referenced. And then uh Willis, you know, McLean goes, you have enough plastic explosives here to blow Arnold Schwarzenegger into orbit. So he's referenced in the movie. I thought that was kind of clever and obviously the ties that you mentioned with uh, predator and commando and those actors. But, you know, I look at the actors that list. I don't think there's anyone there that could pull off, what Willis did, as far as being cool and tough and funny at the same time, like I look at Richard Gere, definitely not tough enough. Uh, Stallone and Schwarzenegger, they're too muscular, right? Schwarzenegger, they're too much action hero, muscular, right? Because Willis is down the earth, flawed character, but he's a guy you want to have a beer with. He's just so cool, down to earth. Um, I think Harrison Ford could pull it off, right? Because he's got the action and the comedy. Uh, down, so that's one of the few actors I think could pull it off. And I think I think Eastwood's just tough and just not not doesn't hit the comedic aspect. Same with De Niro. I mean, De Niro, Niro could be funny. I think he actually probably isn't as tough um, as as Willis pull off uh, McLean Bronson probably just too stoic. Don Johnson maybe, and I think Burt, Burt Reynolds could. But man, I'll tell you, Willis. I even think other actors. I don't there's not many like it. You know, I think maybe well Sean Connery would be an obvious one to come to mind and I think present day there's not only actor that comes to mind present day is probably like maybe uh Ryan Reynolds maybe but that's about it man. I it's hard to think of anyone who could nail that role and and be so perfectly cast.
0: Oh man. yeah, it's obviously it's it's the character of his of his career, right? But I mean yeah. he 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 did he did several films with it. But I I will say this about Don Johnson cuz this was this was around, you know, four or five years after Miami Vice had had premiered. So he was, you know, about to wrap up on that show. But, you know, Sonny Crockett's character was a very like, you know, very confident, very arrogant, but kind of kind of a cracky cop. Right. And he had that element to him where he was cool and likable, but he was also kind of like kind of tough. And and I think that, you know, Don Johnson from that time could have pulled that off. I'm, I'm glad it was Bruce Willis, but I I wouldn't mind seeing like a screen test or something like that with Don Johnson. That would have been pretty cool to yeah. see. I don't disagree. He
1: definitely had the swagger like Willis has. But let me tell you, I don't know. It's a fine. It's a balance. I mean, I really thought about this hard. It's so balanced to how tough but accessible Willis is. I don't, I don't know if Johnson can really be that tough in that action role, that physical of a role. Anyway, that, that's my take. But I hear you on Johnson. I think uh, out of all those candidates, he's, he's towards the top of the list.
0: So the studio Fox, they hire um, the screenwriter named Jeb Stewart to adapt the book, the book that you just bought that I can't wait to borrow. And um, apparently this guy was having a really hard time getting Die Hard on on page. And he just he was he was going through some writer's block and was really, um, really struggling with this material. And then I guess one night he had a, a near death experience. He's driving. He's driving at night in Los Angeles. He had just had a fight with his wife. Um, he's out by himself, and I guess something fell off of a truck in front of him mm-hmm. as he was driving and he had a swerve. And I guess he 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 just avoided getting into a really serious accident. And I guess he pulled off to the side and he had to just kind of catch his breath and he just realized um what just happened and that like life is precious and that he you know he felt bad that he if he had had he just died there, he would not have actually, you know, made up with his wife, right? Because he would have died having just had a fight with her. So like I guess that night he ran right home. He apologized to his wife immediately and he got back to his keyboard and he banged out like 35, 40 pages of, of the Die Hard script. And from that point forward, apparently it got done very, very quickly. And it was the kind of script that when, when he pitched it to Fox and he finally submitted the final draft, I think they actually greenlit the movie within 24 hours. Mm. That's how fast Die Hard got greenlit. And then it, w- it was up and running. All right. Here's what I thought was really interesting, Chief. Alan Rickman nearly passed up the role of Hans Gruber, which ended up being his very first film role. Um, He had only arrived in Hollywood a couple of days earlier and was apparently appalled by the idea of this being his first role, being a villain in such a film. Did you hear about the whole story about Alan Rickman with the premiere when it was
1: first screened, the first ever screening in LA, Alan Rickman, he walks into this, right? Just like you and I would, no one bothered him. No one knew who he was. Just an average ordinary person walked in to the Hollywood premiere, sat down, Movie played first time seen. end of the movie. He couldn't leave the theater. People were mobbing him. He, he couldn't, he couldn't leave. He became a superstar. He walked in a nobody walked out a superstar. People were mobbing him for photographs, autographs, interviews. That was it. His life changed.
0: It's, I did not know that that's fascinating. I, I do know that he struggled throughout the rest of his career um, to actually avoid being typecast, I guess for, after Die Hard, he was getting a lot of offers to play other kinds of villains and heavies and whatnot. And that obviously he was a stage actor. He's from London, and uh, this was his first big American studio movie, so it was obviously a, a big, a big pivot for him. Um, but where does where does Gruber rank for you as far as like top villains and movies? I mean, it's it's got to be up there, man. And that performance is where funny. does he rank? I would say second to Darth
1: Vader. He is without a doubt, one of the best all-time antagonists. Okay. So it's, he's amazing, right? So it's funny too. Um I read this. He's actually, you look at him as the antagonist, you know, and Willis's character, character obviously the protagonist, but you could actually flip it. Gruber could be the protagonist because he's the one who moves the story along. It's his story. He's in complete control. And the antagonist is McLean because he's the one literally trying to blow up the plan, break his plan. He's, Creating all sorts of chaos. So I thought that was really an interesting juxtaposition. But
0: that's a that's a flimsy theory. Did you read that somewhere? Whose theory? Yeah, is that your I came theory? across
1: that, yeah. And something I was like, wow. I mean, but it makes sense. I don't think it's flimsy. I think it actually makes a hell of a lot of sense. Well, I think it's just the presence that Rickman has. Look, Hans Gruber owns that movie. To me, he's a bigger character than McLean. For me. He is so powerful he wa- here 's something that 's cool right, if you think about it when you watch that movie, so I, I compare him to Vader because when I was a kid seven or eight and we watched I was in the theater watching Star Wars, that opening sequence right you never seen anything like it. The stormtroopers come out, blow away all those guys, the fighters, and like all of a sudden, through that smoke and the lasers, here comes vader doesn 't say what you hear the breathing he just walks through with this presence and you 're like. Holy shit. Who is this? What is this? I've never seen anything like this. That presence, right? So then look at Alan Rickman. When the movie opens, when you first watch that movie the first time, you know he's the badass. You know he's the leader in control just by his presence, his body language, his eyes. He doesn't even say anything. And this is interesting, too, I think, in the movie. He doesn't say much. That whole first scene He's kind of just swaggering. He's walking. Everyone else is doing shit. He's just got his hands in his pocket. He looks totally calm and relaxed. But you know he's the leader. And and then, you know, Willis is in the restroom, and all of a sudden, like, he hears a gunfire and all the chaos. And Alan Rickman, Hans Gruber, hasn't even spoken yet. And he's already established himself as he's the villain. So I, I think he's just... The most amazing antagonist, the most amazing uh, villain.
0: Yeah, there's that long tracking shot of them when they get off the truck in the garage, and it follows them through. And all the guy, he's wearing his his trench coat, and all the guys are next to him. They all kind of come through, and yeah, they, they, they accomplish a lot there without saying very much, which is really interesting. I also I noticed this the other day, and I'll probably touch on this a little bit later. But one of the things I found fascinating about Die Hard is that for 15 minutes, that movie plays before you even see that villain's truck you know, driving towards the building. So it's, it's 15 minutes of screen time before you even see the bad guys. Now, I guess in any major movie today, that's probably not that much time, but for a movie like that back in the eighties for that much setup and, and sort of just kind of establishing, you know, mood and tone, which I think that movie does really well. um, I thought it was really sort of patient and methodical that they waited that long before you actually see Gruber. That was something I've always appreciated about this movie, but I noticed it again, recently when I watched it, that it really, a long time goes before he even shows up. But yeah, he commands every scene that he's in. It's a, it's a yeah. fantastic performance. I'm not sure if he's number two villain of all time. I, I've never done my list, but it's gotta be, it's gotta be a top five all timer for
1: sure. Yeah. He, he's one of the major elements of that make them die hard. That special of a movie. Yeah. He's, he's something else. So it's a very, there's some subtlety to his role. It's a very elegant role, but man, he, uh, he commands the screen. It's amazing.
0: The big scene at the end when when he's he's about to get dropped off the off the floor off the balcony of the building. I guess McTiernan had given him he was going to they were going to do a three count, um, so he'd be ready for the fall. Right? I guess there was a big yeah, big drop, and then he was he was going to fall into some sort of cushion or whatever. But so when they did the three count, he did one two, and I guess they released Rickman on number two as opposed to three. So that way he wasn't ready for it. So I guess the reaction, the facial reaction that you see of Rickman in that scene, it was because he wasn't ready for it to go on two. And that's when they dropped them.
1: Yeah, I, I have, I've heard that story. You know, there's a lot of ad libbing in the movie. I mean, they had that, but also with Ellis when he goes, Hans Booby that was ad-libbed and that's why he had this like weird, incredulous look on his face and looked at him strange. He wasn't expecting that either. So,
0: so that, and, that actor, his name is Hart Bachner. So he yeah. ad-libbed that is what you're saying? Yeah, That's awesome. And, and that got the reaction, the natural reaction from, uh, you know, Rickman, but you know, also there's a
1: lot of ad-libbing. Willis ad-libbed a lot of the con- you know, the, the funny lines too, which is surprising. That just shows you how talented he is and fun, funny and, and, and naturally funny. Uh, and there's a ton of that's ad-libbed and they just let him go, uh, go with it. But, um, I'm really, uh, I can't go on and on enough about Rickman though, because again, the charm, his charisma, he's this intellectual, right. And he's got just so much, of his screen presence. He's just literally present there. And it's also his voice, right? Like it's, it's not just the body language, but his voice alone, is just so commanding and, 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 and sophisticated, uh, and intimidating, but man, 30 minutes of the movie, once he, uh, blows
0: away Takagi and, uh, That's it, man. You know he's a badass. Bruce Willis suffered permanent hearing loss. You know the scene when um, he's under the table and and the terrorist is is standing on top of the table and he's like he's shooting through the table and Bruce Willis is kind of zigzagging. It's that tape that that goes and um, he runs out of table at the end. And that scene when Bruce Willis shoots the guy from under the table, that scene is when Bruce Willis apparently, I guess the gun they were using, it was too close to his ear and he he wasn't wearing any sort of earpieces or what have you because he couldn't because of the movie. Um, it was so loud that he suffered like two-thirds hearing loss in one of his ears for the rest of his life. That's horrible. Yeah, it's unbelievable.
1: But, I mean, I know he does his own stunts, like you say, and it's like he's – I guess it's a risk you take, but I,
0: that's that's wild. The music score was was composed by Michael Kamen, who is a, a notable um, film composer. He's done many movies. He had done Lethal Weapon um, the year before with Eric Clapton and, and David Sandmore, but he had, he had done the score for, for Die Hard. But I guess it was McTiernan's idea to use Ode to Joy, which you referenced earlier from, from Beethoven, uh, and they they integrated that that piece throughout the score of this film, which is one of the things I love about Die Hard more than anything else is the music and the fact that they used Beethoven as freely as they did. And I guess Michael Kamen's reaction to that was like, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's sacrilegious. There's no way I would ever use Beethoven and, and as part of my score. So I guess McTiernan told him that, Oh, the joy had been the theme of ultraviolence in Kubrick's a clockwork orange. And I guess because came was a Kubrick fan. That's when he finally agreed to do it. But uh, I say that to you because I know that clockwork is one of your all timers. Number two, you know what number one is? And that's number two. <laughs> but isn't that awesome that like he, he had to be convinced yeah. to, to do Beethoven? I mean, I can't. I mean, listen, diehard works regardless of whether or not there's Beethoven in it. But like, they really use that 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 piece throughout the movie. Even like Gruber at the beginning like when he's like walking in the elevator, he's like whistling Ode to Joy as well. Like there's these pieces of it where they use throughout the movie. It's not just like at the end. They use it when the, the vault opens. Right. There's a lot a lot of elements and I think it just makes that movie kind of elevate to the next level with that with that use of Beethoven. Pretty
1: awesome. Yeah. Agreed. It's sophisticated, right? And it's like look, Kubrick used it masterfully and he's a genius and it's like okay, so Same type of level. It's a sophisticated piece of music. So does it feel out of place in the very an action thriller, right? That's kind of about violence and nonstop action. And then you have this very elegant, beautiful, iconic piece of music that's, uh, you know, an elevated piece of music. It's it's interesting, but it works incredibly well. I agree with you
0: 100%. It adds a whole nother layer and dimension uh, to the movie. You and I have been joking about this for years, years, decades. decades. I maintain that Hans and his henchmen, they are terrorists and you do not. Explain. Why do you think they are terrorists? Well, first of all, um, the movie poster says that they're terrorists. And so that, that that's that. And then I think there's a scene when, when Bruce Willis is on the roof and he's talking to the into his walkie-talkie, he's trying to get for help. He said, like, he said a team of terrorists have taken control of Nakatomi Plaza. So he's a cop. He even thinks they're terrorists. Why don't you think they're terrorists? Well, he thinks they're terrorists because, of course, what else is he to think? He knows nothing.
1: The guy's on his own. He's a, this like lone ranger running around the building. He is not, he's speaking to Al and nobody else, right? So he has no idea. But this is why. You can't always believe what you see on a movie poster, right? <laughs> Let's go there. Number one, right? They're not going to give it up. The whole idea and plot of the movie is the guys is that they're terrorists. They're actually thieves posing as terrorists. That's one of the main points of the movie, Dennis. So here it is. We try to come clean one last time on this wonderful podcast. You can come clean, and here it is. So there's three points. First one 30 minutes into the movie, right? He's sitting down with Takagi, and he's like, you know, he he brings up, I'm interested in those six, the $640 million worth of untraceable bearer bonds in the vault. What's the combination, right? The code yeah. to break the vault. He's like, Takagi asked, what type of terrorist, what kind of terrorists are you? <laughs> he laughs at him. He said, who said we were terrorists? Chief, 30 minutes of the movie, right there. Okay. Midway through the movie, he's sitting there and he's starting to give demands like exchange of hostages for... You know, these groups, these terrorist groups. Right. So acting, posing and acting like a terrorist. So he says, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so. He says, so-and-so members of Asian Dawn. Right. And, and, and Carl's sitting across from him and in, in Holly's office. He's like, what the fuck? He's like, who the hell are the Asian Dawn? Like he said that whispers that to him. And, and, and uh, Hans is like, I read about them in Time magazine. Okay. He has no clue. He doesn't get me. And even Carl says, do you think they'll let them go? And he's like, I don't care. He, it has nothing to do with anything. It's a poser. It's a guy. So the last end of the movie, the last point here is Holly. When he's got Holly in the end and the bear bonds are there and he's packing him away. And she's like all this posing, posturing and speeches. You're nothing but a common thief. And then Hans gets all pissed off. He lights up He goes right in her face. He says, I'm an exceptional thief, right? That's the first time you seem like really emotional, but he's an exceptional thief. Boom. Those three points in the movie. And the last thing I have to say is you got to go to Wikipedia, right? Because that's like, you're going to find the truth in Wikipedia, right? I'm going to read right off here. Go down the plot on the Wiki page. and Wikipedia, it says, second paragraph, first line, Gruber is posing as a terrorist to steal a 640 million in untraceable bearer bonds in the building's vault. Let me read that beginning again. Gruber is posing as a
0: terrorist and even McTiernan admits it. So there you have it, chief. Wikipedia is always, the. it's always good to go to Wikipedia for the, for the final call. What are you going to say? Come but on. You know Listen, saying? man, all, all I'm saying is I've got a, a, a Florida ceiling, French international diehard one sheet that, um, I usually have up in my office. I just took it down recently as I just wanted to put something new up. But uh, it says yeah. terrorists. Plain as okay. day.
1: <laughs> so the one sheet, right? The one sheet doesn't want to give it away. The one sheet doesn't want to give the movie away. Hey, how about the one sheet for six cents, right, with Willis's face underneath it? It doesn't say, oh, by the way, he's already dead. They don't want to give it away, man. Come on. So, Chief, you're not going to give in, huh? I'm just doing this to fuck you. Are, you before. are stubborn, man. You're stubborn. But you know what? Just like you were stubborn day you wore that Alzado jersey, man, and we met.
0: That's why I love you. Hey, it worked out, man. I played well that day, as we said. <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a break, and then we're going to keep going. We'll be right back. <laughs> cool. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by our good friends at The Waffle Company, the first ever get-and-give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, They donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. You know, I have to admit something. I have become that guy who basically uses social media to simply post pictures of my dogs. It's true. Sure, I may plug this podcast across social time to time and have been known to express my disappointment in another unwanted Hollywood reboot. I can't believe they are remaking Roadhouse. But let's be honest, what I enjoy doing most is posting adorable pictures of my two boxers. And most of those photos feature my girls lounging on their waffle beds. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. And the beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. We all love our dogs, and if you like watching them sleep just like I do, Get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night, which should make you sleep better at night. But nobody wants to see a photo of you sleeping. Just your dog, okay? You can order them at waffleco.com, just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Buy one today and use the promo code dennis 20 to receive a 20% discount off your purchase. The waffle company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the show. Is the building on fire? No, but it's gonna need a paint job and a shitload of screen doors. Our spotter said you got two with that blast. Is that him? Is that him? Yes, sir. Now you listen to me, mister. I don't know who the hell you think you are or what you're doing, but you just destroyed a building. Now we do not want your help. Is that clear? We don't want your help. I've got a hundred people down here and they're covered with glass. Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Who the fuck is this? This is Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, and I am in charge of this situation. Oh, you're in charge? Well, I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. I'm up here doesn't look like you're in
1: charge of jack shit. You listen to me, you little asshole. I'm a- asshole?
0: I'm not the one who just got butt fucked on national TV, Dwayne. <laughs> Now, you listen to me, jerk If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Quit being part of the fucking problem and put the other guy back on. Hey, Roy, how you feeling? Pretty fucking unappreciated, Al. Hey, look, I love you. So do a lot of the other guys.
1: So you hang in there, man, you hear me? You hang in there.
0: Yeah, thanks, partner. Chief, I want to talk about um, a couple of things. One, the reception of this film and its legacy and and really more importantly, the influence of Die Hard because it's pretty pretty significant. I think we, could, we can both agree that Die Hard is now considered one of the greatest action films ever made. Um, but the reviews at the time it was released were actually kind of mixed. But the film was actually selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2017 for being culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. It is included among the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 400 movies nominated for the Top 100 Greatest American Movies. Um, On the film's 30th anniversary in 2018, the Hollywood Reporter wrote that Die Hard was easily one of the most influential films in the action genre, whose impact could still be seen in contemporary films. So Roger Ebert was one of actually the few critics who gave this movie a negative review. Uh, the main reason is that he thought the character of Chief Dwayne Robinson, who was played by Paul Gleason, who was also Clarence Beeks in Trading Places, he said that the character was unnecessary, useless, dumb, and he prevented the movie from working. Raj, man, that's a tough. That's a tough take on Die Hard, just because of Chief uh, Chief Dwayne Robinson. Look, Roger Ebert can be a clown at times. Tip, typical clown move by him.
1: He likes the attention, dude. We love growing up watching Siskel and Ebert, right? So, do you remember? I always recall like Siskel was smarter, more the intellectual, more polished, and he knew his shit. And he was like just better at it, and honestly, more talented of a. a, a a movie critic, in my my in my opinion, okay. So, but I always remember the times where like Roger Ebert. He just wanted to get you know stir the pot, and he'd say something ridiculous or be a clown, and 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 Siskel would like look at him incredulously and just like look down on him and say, "What are you thinking, man?" And then just come up with something really eloquent to say and just a, an elegant statement that is really spot on and smart. So I I'm, I'm, I was always a Siskel fan, but anyway, um, that said, you know that character. Uh, the chief Dwayne Robinson. I mean, it's a minor role. Yeah. He, he has, he, he is an antagonist, right? He kind of creates more hurdles and chaos for Willis. And that's the point. And and some of it is kind of really cheesy and dumb, but you know what? And it doesn't, I don't know if that stands the test of time. Really nowadays, you wouldn't have a character like that, but look back in the eighties, how many like clumsy cops who were inept, right? Police officers who are inept and like clueless. Right. I mean, that's shocker, right? That, that was like pretty common back in the day. I mean, in Die Hard two, Sipowicz and Dennis Franz's character portraying Sipowicz and those cops, they were really buffoons. So I don't know. I just, it, it, it didn't, it's quirky. It's definitely a quirky character in role, but it doesn't bother me. It definitely doesn't take away from the movie at the end of that. Um, by the way, at the end of that critique, when Ebert brought that up, because he introduced the movie and he brought that up, Siskel finishes saying well you know what that didn't bother me he's a minor character it's all about Hans Gruber versus John McClane good versus evil and it's like I just loved that the two those two characters are so strong and powerful the movie worked for me it's a great movie go see it
0: that's what Siskel how he ended that uh segment Pal, he could be a fucking bartender for all we know. Like that's 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 funny stuff right there. I mean, that's this movie is hugely quotable mainly because of characters like that. So it, I, I have no issue with it. Roger Ebert, man, m- maybe just didn't sleep all well the night before. That's that's a miss on Die Hard comedy.
1: So you bring up a good point. He is co- uh, comedic. Re- relief, right? No doubt. It's a comedy role. And you know what? The the point in the 80s, there was so much comedy. Like, first off, we had action comedies were primarily the action genre, right? But but buddy cop movies, action comedies, 48 Hours, Axel Foley, Beverly Hills Cop. You and I went to see all those movies, right? But man, the amount of funny lines and comedy in Die Hard, it's like an 80s thing. After every death, there's a funny line to soften the mood, right? To light it up. And Chief Dwayne Robinson does it. Even in Hans Gruber's death, he's like, Oh, I hope that's not a hostage. Right. And it's like there's so many funny lines after a death and, and, and McLean. Welcome to the party pile if, when he drops a body on Al's uh, patrol car. And I mean, it's just one after the other, even with uh, at the beginning when Hans Gruber comes and tells everybody, you know, Mr. Takagi won't be joining us. For the rest of his life. And he's eating a cheese plate. Like, I mean, they just take, they really lighten the mood after death. And it's just a common thing in the 80s that you don't see nowadays ever. There's a high body counts, a lot of kills, a lot of blood and violence. And there ain't no apology and ain't no comedy about it, man. It's hardcore and dark. So.
0: Mr. Mr.
1: Guest, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open the front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you?
0: Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequence shirts.
1: Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr.
0: Cowboy? Hey, motherfucker. There's a, a really great book that I read a couple of months ago. So when you finish the Die Hard book, you're going to send that to me and I will send you this book. Um, the book is called They Shouldn't Have Killed His Dog. Um, it's by Edward Gross and Mark Altman. And basically what it is, it's an oral history of John Wick. Um, I am a big fan of the John Wick film, particularly the first one. I do love the other ones, but I think the John Wick original is a phenomenal action film. And this book is an oral history about how that movie got made. And everybody from um, Keanu Reeves to the producers, the studio folks, the director, everybody um, is quoted and interviewed for this book. And the, and the book spends a lot of time talking about um, American action films and how they were all influenced by a lot of Asian films at the, t- at the time from the, from the 60s and 70s going into the 80s, um, Die Hard being one of those movies that had many influences. It's interesting, though. So if you, if you go back and look at it, they, they make this argument that Die Hard is sort of like a, a distant cousin of Commando. So Commando came out in 1985. It was it was sort of like the, you know, Schwarzenegger's second big movie after Terminator. Um very cheesy, very silly, stupid concept. I love it. I love everything about Commando, but you know, not going to win any awards. So Commando comes out in 85. We dubbed that too, by the way, Chief, right? That's another one we dubbed. We totally dubbed Commando. I mean, Chief, we dubbed like every movie that came out between 1984 to like 1989. <laughs> 1987, you've got Lethal Weapon, which I mentioned earlier. You also had Predator. And the funny thing is that Joel Silver produced all those movies. He produced Commando. He produced Lethal Weapon. He produced Predator. And he produced Die Hard. McTiernan also directed Predator. Stephen E. D'Souza also wrote Predator as well as Die Hard. And John Link also edited Commando, Predator, and Die Hard. So it created a whole new genre, in my opinion, subgenre
1: of action, right? The action thriller and, you know, you mentioned the the Asian influence. Yeah, I mean, early 80s, man. Well, Bruce Lee, right in the 70s, it was Bruce Lee and the Kung Fu movies coming out of Hong Kong and Karate. And then Chuck Norris Americanized that right in the early 80s. Sure and then, did. Like, there was a lot of military-based action in the early 80s, the action comedies we mentioned. When Die Hard came out, there was nothing else like it. So you can't just call it action, right? It became an action thriller and they call Indiana Jones and they call Raiders an action adventure. Because I did look at this. I had to go back and say, okay, 1970s action movies. There's not much, man. There's some of the enter the dragon to your point about the martial arts movies, uh, dirty Harry, the French connection. That's a car chase. And then if you look at like the eighties, man, then it's still until die hard, it's all buddy cop movies, and then there's the sci-fi stuff, right? The dystopian action movies like uh, Terminator and Mad Max, Road Warrior. So, I don't know, man. It's amazing. Once Die Hard came out, it changed the game, man. It just changed the whole face of action.
0: There's a there's a film historian named Glenn Oliver, and he's quoted in this in this book as well that he says there is a general perception that Lethal Weapon and Die Hard reinvented the action genre that they were significant and pivotal, uh, which I would not disagree. The right. result of filmmaking trends, which were established earlier. If you look at Top Gun's energy infused, visceral, in your face style, Richard Donner evolved that and Lethal the weapon. Mm-hmm. This historian says that these films were perfect storms. They are dissonant, even brutal privatizations of elements from numerous inspirations, expertly grafted by directors with clear visions, just like McTiernan writers with a strong cross genre knowledge base and editors possessing either the instinct or mandate to maximize raw visceral impact. It's spot on on what, what worked about Die Hard. 100% nailed it. Yeah, that's so true. Yep.
1: It's, and it's, you know, Die Hard too. it, it kind of, it's a result of a reaction to those action comedies, like Beverly Hills Cop, like that that bubblegum 80s with the 80s soundtrack and a lot of color, and it's fun and funny and playful. And Die Hard got real, even though it has that comedic undertone, it's very dark and serious. And it's shot at night and a lot of the scenes are really dark. And, you know, I mean, nowadays movies are so dark, right? I just told you, I saw that the new, newest Batman and compare that to the 89 Batman, right? To current day Batman, that's an evolution of darkness. It shows you how dark the time we live in because the I mean, movies are like art. They reflect the time we live in. And man, movies are so dark now. Die Hard was kind of like the beginning of that, right, in my mind, that shifting away from that, you know, the 80s that we, we all knew, <laughs> the Miami Vice 80s that we all uh, loved growing up. So, You
0: know, it's funny you say that about the darkness. I actually agree with that. I, when I watched Die Hard again not long ago, I, I realized uh, how darkly shot that movie is. Um, obviously the majority of the the movie takes place at night. So just by, by virtue of the storyline, it's, it's going to be dark, but even like, even like the opening scene, when he lands on the plane at sunset and he gets in the car, there's like this orange brownish glow, it's LA, it's sunset, it's December. And like, they, there's just like a glow that the film has and it's, and it's very dark. There's a lot of scenes when McLean's running around the building that some scenes I thought were just like, maybe not even properly lit. And I'm right. sure they, they did that for like, obviously for artistic effect, but really beautifully shot. Well, let's talk about the art artistry behind this.
1: Cause this is a big point for me. Like, one of the major reasons I love the movie is So it's so artistic. I mean, for, it's a, it's a thrill ride, adrenaline rush, of course. Right. And it's got all these m- amazing magical moments, but man, the artistry of it to McTiernan, great job on the cinematography. You mentioned the color shift, right? hundred percent. You start watching it as soon as a plane lands, Glow that you mentioned, that goldish glow. It's a John McTiernan film on the right. On the left is a plane. It's got that goldish hue to it. And then Argyle picks him up, it goes blue. And when it's interior into the limo, it gets cool blue. And then outside, they show the sunset with this like pink and goldish hue. I don't know. You live in LA, I don't know if the sunsets really look like that, but man, it's like the shift in color, so dramatic. It adds such a visual eye candy to it and just the visual flair that's so unique uh, and special. And I think, I believe, I'm going to say that 24 started borrowing from that with the extreme cool to warm, cool to warm, to reflect emotion, to reflect characters and settings, right? And he did that a lot, McTiernan, in the interior, exterior of those. Um, and at the end of the film, that red hue that dominated the very ending of the film, right? The whole tone of it, right? It's that lens of red over the whole, uh, imagery in the end. And I mean, I know he did it in Hunt for Red October. So that kind of stylistic technique, uh, I'm not saying he created it, but he definitely established it in like taking an action movie and not just making it a thriller, right? Just making it something that's well shot as well. You know, it's, it's especially beautifully shot.
0: So what sets the movie apart in many ways is, is the setting, right? And this it's, it's in this contained location. It's one building and that's where the entire thing takes place. Red October, which McTiernan also directed is a similar yeah. where it's like, you know, obviously, they, there's multiple submarines in that movie, but a lot of the action, by and large, takes place in the Red October, and again, claustrophobic. It's right. one setting, and. I think McTiernan is just like kind of a. He sort of reminds me of um, Michael Mann a little bit in terms of how he sets up some of his shots and the way light bounces off the off the lens and there, you see this rainbow effect that sometimes comes mm. when a camera pivots and um, that's the kind of stuff that about, about Die Hard and Route October that I that I think makes those movies stand apart because they're they're just there's there's a. There's an elegance to the way they're, they're framed. And people might laugh when I say that it's Die Hard. It's an action movie. It's 1988. But I really do think Die Hard, if you watch Die Hard with a critical eye, that movie is beautifully photographed.
1: It is. And that's well, it's, it's, it stands the test of time. It still looks fresh today like it could have been shot a couple of years ago last year. It's just so fresh and relevant. And you mentioned the claustrophobic aspect of it, which I think that whole scene In the ventilation duct, right? That is symbolic. He's like tightly trapped in that. That's like the symbolism of claustrophobic, you know, just on his own, isolated. He's in this air duct. And the beauty of it is it's dark, right? And then he lights his his lighter, right? And then all of a sudden he's glowing, you know, that, that, that light's not all coming from the lighter. You got to watch it. So they just hit him with light right when the lighter goes on and it's like, wow, it's so seamless and fluid. It's so beautifully done. But that lighting there, and I tell you, there's another right after that, he's lit with his lighter. And then when the lighters off and and Carl had already shot up the vent and Carl's got his machine gun, he's pressing up on the vent to feel for the dead body and the weight of the body McLean's looking down through the ventilation grate. He's looking up. You see the light just coming up, and you have this vertical light just lightly casting shadow and hitting McLean. It's so subtle and beautiful. And that lighting, that they do that a lot in the movie, right? Because whenever Hans Gruber's looking outside through the, the, the blinds, you see the horizontal lines on his face and the light coming in from the outside, even though it's nighttime, you know it's light from the helicopters and just from uh, the stars it's, it's amazing uh, and Bruce Willis too when he's looking down at Al's car you see the light kind of coming in from him from the outside to light him up um, just lighting is just an amazing again it, beyond you always think about the pyrotechnics and the special effects but the way they, that McTiernan hands, handles lighting in that movie it's it's definitely magical it adds to the the richness and the elegance like you said to the movie and, and makes it even more uh, artistic than uh, an action movie should be right
0: well I mean other other studios and other filmmakers obviously try to replicate the template. I mean what what do they say it's you know um imitation is the best form of flattery, right? Uh-huh. I guess I would ask you this if you when you watch Die Hard every Christmas with with your son, it would be interesting to know if he understands the influence of this movie because Die Hard basically created a whole new genre of action movies I mean it's that it's the dominant location right it's the mm-hmm. everyman hero it's the you know the colorful bad guy think about all that came after die hard I mean it, there was actually a joke that all these movies that came years later were die hard on a blank right so it's like mm-hmm. die hard on a bus was speed die hard on a ship speed two. Die Hard on an airplane, Passenger Fifty Seven, um, Air Force One, right? <laughs> right. So many movies came out in the in the early, mid, late '90s that all took that Die Hard playbook and tried to tried to make it better. None of them ever really succeeded. Um, maybe Speed was was quite good, not quite at the Die Hard level, but definitely. One of the better ones. But isn't it incredible to think like how many ripoffs came after this? I'll tell you,
1: nowadays, I mean, they're so above and beyond that, right? I think movies right now, it's all about CGI. Um, Marvel and Disney are dominating that type of genre that's way beyond the action thriller. So I don't think there's another movie like Die Hard or will be like Die Hard ever again. I just think these movies are just so dominated with high body counts or car chases and the special effects are so over the top right now. It's insane, the CGI. So, um, yeah, Die Hard, uh, no one's going to imitate Die Hard. I think it's pretty much, uh, you know, there's been attempts, to your point, but uh, nothing like it before and nothing like it after, in my mind. Did you ever hear about the 24, the Jack Bauer connection with Die Hard?
0: No. What is this? Because a fox in 2013.
1: They were going to do an overlap story where it was Bauer – Die Hard and, and, and McLean. And it was going to be Die Hard 24-7. But the negotiations fell through. They couldn't come to terms with uh, Kiefer Sutherland. He just didn't come to an agreement. So They were going to do
0: it. a McLean-Bauer movie?
1: Yeah. Back in 2013. And so, yeah, you have to look it up. I have to be honest. I came across that in Wikipedia. So... Um, and that wasn't that long ago when I read that. And, um, yeah, it's really – I know you'd find this interesting because I know you and I, huge fans of 24. And you can see the influence, right, that Die Hard had and obviously a character like McClane has on, um,
0: on someone like, you know, Jack Bauer. Steve and I watched 24 – so this would have been season two because I watched season one of 24 on DVD. I remember I just bought it. Um, I had not watched it on television. I just bought it and thought I would like it, and I did. And I blew through the entire first season in in like a week or something. So then season two rolls along. This is when you and I are both living in New York City, Upper East Side, not that far away from each other. But this was this was before DVR. This was like when you had to watch everything live. Still, DVRs were coming like soon, but they weren't quite there yet. But I remember on Tuesdays, right? Twenty Four was on Tuesdays, right? Tuesday night, yes. And we, you always came to my my studio for whatever reason, and you would be like, you would meet me after work. I'd run home, walk my dog. And then like you would, you would come and be like, chief, I'll be there in like 10 minutes. I think we had text (laughs) at that point. We had crappy mobile phones, but not the text that everybody's familiar with today, but I would order us Chinese food and you would, you would get there just in time for us to watch Jack Bauer live. We did this every Tuesday for like almost the entire season two, right? Yep,
1: must see TV, man. Appointment viewing—that was probably one of our last big appointment viewing uh, shows.
0: You had told me that you wanted to talk about the sequels a little bit before, you know, before we break. Is there anything about Die Hard Two or Die Hard with a Vengeance or the others that you wanna you wanna get on the record? I like Die Hard Two better than uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and that's
1: because Die Hard with a Vengeance—I have a tough time with it. I'll tell you why. Shame on McTiernan, man. It's a money grab. Here, you said it best. Imitation is the best form of flattery, right? But you're imitating yourself. When you're copying, if you're going to copy and imitate yourself, do it well. He imitates himself. He rips off Die Hard with Die Hard 3, and he does a poor job of it. Hans Gruber, the bad guy, it's Simon Gruber, Hans's brother. You don't even like, you're not even imitating Hans Gruber, you take it as his brother. And you know, you have, it's just amazing to me if Jeremy Irons is like, amazing actor and he can't hold a candle to Hans Gruber and Rickman. It's just like, it's kind of a flat bad guy. Um, there's also a knockoff of Carl, this guy, Rolf, his sideman, right? Like just a, a bad imitation of Carl. It's just amazing to me, the similarities,
0: but they just, uh, he just didn't do it right. So, uh, and Shame the music, they rip, they rip off the music too. They 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 use that, um, and I don't know what that that piece is that they use in Die Hard Three. It's that German music, and I'm, I'm probably wrong. I'm, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. It was, uh-huh, it was that sure. it was their an, it was their answer to Beethoven? It wasn't Beethoven, but they used that that piece all throughout whenever they showed the bad guys, and it was, they just kept playing it over and over again. I think Die Hard with a Vengeance is not a very good movie. I will see it whenever come whenever I come across it. If I'm eating dinner and I just want to watch something stupid, I will watch it. But it's poorly shot. It's got bad cinematography. The movie is, makes no sense. It's all over the place. They had to shoot the end, reshoot the ending, which feels like it because when you watch it, the ending makes no sense. There's like they're up in Canada or something, and there's a helicopter, and I, I don't even, I don't even know what's going on. But the movie is just doesn't work. Everything that went
1: w- went right with Die Hard went
0: wrong with Die Hard with a Vengeance. Just a strict money
1: grab on Retirement's part, in my opinion.
0: And the only reason McTiernan did not do Die Hard 2, Die Harder, was that he was too busy doing The Hunt for Red October. Thank God, because I'm so glad he did Hunt for Red October. That movie is one of my favorite movies as well. Yes. So that's why Rennie Harlan directed Die Hard 2. But then McTiernan, who was available for the third one, did come back and do the third one, um, To uh, much to your disappointment. And
1: Die, Die Hard
0: 2 had its moments. The
1: coolest thing about like Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 3 like, is that there's no cell phones, right? They're running around to pay phones. I always, it's so funny to watch like McLean smoking in an airport, yeah, you know, smoking yeah. on a plane. And that's just those movies put in the 80s in context. But um, yes, it's a, refreshing not to see cell phones in a movie. Uh, but yeah, other than that, yeah, Die Hard with Avengers. And then the other, I did wind up seeing all five Die Hards. I watched them backwards just to see the difference in how they evolved and – You know, it just reflects kind of the way movies have, the direction movies have gone. Like that last Die Hard movie, it was just all about violence and it was darkly, it's a dark movie. It's a high body count. It's just extreme graphic violence and crazy chase scenes. But the plot, the characters, not a bad, the villain's uninteresting and doesn't hold uh, a candle to Hans Gruber. So um, it tells you just the magic that Die Hard wasn't as hard, you know, to put a movie together, that, that pull a movie together that is that awesome, right? It's like being there at the right place at the right time with the right stuff. Everything came together great with Die Hard, from the casting to the dialogue to all the artistry we talked about, the pyrotechnics, the story, everything, man. Just uh, bottom line, can't beat it.
0: I would say it's an action masterpiece. I mean, I that's not a word that I throw around a lot, but I would, I would put Die Hard for me personally – I would put that movie on my list. I think that movie is a masterpiece. It's it's like there's so many great things at work at it. I think that the the best way I can kind of explain it for Die Hard is, and I wrote this in my notes here, it's like there are no wasted moments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like all these small little details that that movie's got tons of them all throughout the film. I mean, like even at the very, very beginning when the plane lands and, you know, McLean's talking to the guy next to him, the guy tells him to, you know, walk around on the rug barefoot, make fists with your toes. And, and McLean goes to the, he goes to Holly's office and he takes off his shoes. And while she's giving her speech and he takes off his socks and he's making fists with his toes. And that's the reason that he's barefoot for the entire freaking movie is because this guy in the plane told him to do that, to, to deal with jet lag, those little pieces, those little details, that kind of stuff in the script, it, it's, it's, it's consequential, right? Cause he's, he's barefoot the entire movie and they interweave that, throughout a lot of action set pieces when they're shooting the glass and they're trying to get his feet cut all this sort of stuff. And he's trying to, you know, he, he tries on different guys' shoes to see if they would fit like all because of that advice. I, that's the kind of stuff I love about Die Hard. all because of that one scene. Yeah. It's all, it's
1: like any great movie. There's a lot of magical moments, great moments in the movie that just builds up, builds up, builds up. And, and we know where it goes, but, uh, Right? Once uh, Hans shoots Takaji, it's like, uh, it, that's it. It just goes from one scene to the next. That's uh, riveting and
0: thrilling and uh, unforgettable. I read this quote about, and, and again, I think it all comes back to Bruce Willis and it being the right man for the job at the time that he came along and where he was in his career. I mean, this movie made him a massive, massive global movie star. And um, there's this author of this book called John McTiernan, The Rise and Fall of an Action Movie Icon, but he, this is what he said about um, Bruce Willis is that, you know, he was he went from Superman to everyman. He showed effort, emotion, and pain, people related to his vulnerabilities. He was just a dude with biceps like your dad's. And I think that that's why Die Hard was as, as successful as it was, that people related to Bruce Willis's portrayal of McLean as this everyman character. And that was mm-hmm. something that was just not very common at the time. And it was kind of a breath of fresh air, you know? Well, that's why I said he's so likable, right? I mean, that's why... I mean,
1: Willis is perfect. He's just so likable. I say that's the type of guy you want to have a beer with. I don't smoke cigarettes, but he's smoking a cigarette. I have a cigarette with him and just hang out. He's, he's just cool, super cool, super tough, but funny, uh, friendly. I mean, he's just so likable and, uh, yeah, because he's so down on earth and flawed. He's, you know, he's having trouble with his marriage and he's trying to make amends and, uh, we can all relate to just, uh, you know, day-to-day struggles in life. And, uh, just, I think he's so relatable and then all of a sudden he's doing these superhuman feats but it, it just seems like that's very accessible man this guy's just <laughs> he's so strong and tough and awesome he could handle it you know he, he could pull it off
0: yeah you know chief I was thinking about Bruce Willis the other day like I mean I've been reading a lot and you've probably seen this too that he's in really poor health right. and uh, apparently his his health is in very very serious decline and I don't think we're gonna have Bruce Willis around much longer I think I think he's going to be one of those one of those celebrities, are you going to read that article one of these days when you're waking up one morning and it's going to be like, oh, wow, Bruce Willis is gone because it sounds like he's he's not doing well. Having said that, like, where do you see his career? Like, what's what's his best film? Like, you know, is, is, is it Die Hard? Do you think it's something else? It's probably his best
1: performance, no doubt. I think Die Hard is his best performance, best role. It's tough to see him not John McClane. You know, that's the other thing, too, before, you know. He, there's nothing to identify him with. So when he came to be John McClane, just like you see Kiefer Sutherland, he had other roles, but man, he's Jack Bauer, but you know, Schwarzenegger Terminator, right? You just think of him in different roles. You wouldn't think of him like, it's a John McClane same with, you know, Stallone being Rambo. He was already Rambo it would be tough to make the connection with him as a new character like this, uh, you know, detective from New York city. Who's an average ordinary guy. Um, Whereas Willis, you know, he didn't establish himself yet and all of a sudden becomes John McClain and (laughs) let alone, I don't don't think you can see him as any other. It's hard to get past that, you know. He's an awesome actor. I thought he had so many great roles, and he's in some great movies that are, you know, completely different, like, like Twelve Monkeys, completely different. But you know, that's that's a Terry Gilliam masterpiece. Yep. Um, in Pulp Fiction, he was awesome, but again, that's Tarantino, and there is a lot of the characters in that. It's, he doesn't own that movie. As far as the movie that he owns and dominates, uh, granted, he has to go against Hans Gruber, but uh, and Rickman's amazing performance. But I think, as far as his best performance, Die Hard is it. Uh, as far as best film, man, i think I think I have to say it probably is. What's well, my favorite of his, even though I loved Unbreakable and <laughs> you know, I love, as much as I do love twelve monkeys. Um, and Pulp, obviously, I mean I guess I guess I probably would I rank Pulp over die hard. it's hard to say it's not apples apples, right I guess
0: it's, yeah, it's you not. know it's interesting is he's done all these like schlocky made for you know made for streaming movies now because that's what he's been doing over the last several years just to make money. but yeah obviously he just sort of phones it in and given his his state of his health he's he's not able to do much. but I think like for me, there was always like two, there were kind of two Bruce Willis's there was the Bruce Willis that did various action movies and things like that after Die Hard, movies like striking distance, which nobody remembers. And, you know, I think he played like a river cop or something like he's, he's done some of that low level stuff, but then he also did to your point, like he, he aligned with really talented filmmakers. You know, he worked with M night Shyamalan with the sixth sense and with unbreakable and Terry Gilliam and Tarantino. And he did that movie. Nobody's fool with Paul Newman, like really, really great stuff where I think you, you get to see the more, actor side of bruce willis and i agree with you i think bruce willis is actually um when he wanted to be was actually a very good actor and i thought he did great work in a lot of those films so listen i mean it was the role of a lifetime um it it set forth his entire career he had done some stuff before that but he'll always be known as Die Hard. whenever they do the you know the in memoriam at the oscars several years from now if they show bruce willis they're going to show die hard i mean that's what they're going to show that's what he's going to be known for and Talk about a great film to to be associated with. When the roof blows and heat jumps down and you're like, this is unbelievable. I've
1: never seen like this. And then the music bum, the helicopter comes down and a flame and just a ball of flame and the amount of fire and the amount of explosions. And there's more explosions. You thought when the roof went off, that was enough. And then all of a sudden the helicopter comes down and it's like, I've never seen anything else like this in my life. My, my jaw <laughs> hit the movie theater floor. My chin was on the floor. I was like, I couldn't believe how, what I just saw. Never, we never saw anything like that in
0: our life. Never saw anything like that. When he when he jumps off the roof with the, with the fire hose tied around him and, and it's like that shot. And you know the shot because you see the explosion behind him. It's perfectly timed. Then he does that jump in the air. And it's bright and loud and like and it's almost kind of like slow mo. I mean, talk about a, a sequence that's like one of the great action moments ever. I mean, I wouldn't even say just from like the '80s, but just in, in, in action cinema ever, that sequence of him jumping off the building is just iconic. It, 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 and I th- I think that's why Die Hard is is literally one of my favorite movies. The movie's iconic. I mean talk about how quotable this movie is i mean you and i have quoted that movie for for years and years and years a lot of people quote that movie there are so many great lines not only with mclean but with all the other characters that got good screen time in that film that really make that movie more well-rounded and the reason that happened is because willis was so unavailable because of the moonlighting schedule that what they would do is they would shoot him when they could but then they would spend all their other time shooting all these other actors actors like al powell that character and and Dwayne Robinson, the FBI agents, all these other characters get good screen time because of Willis's unavailability.
1: Yeah. That helicopter scene, by the way, once that happened, and then you mentioned uh, Dwayne Robinson and the FBI guys, Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson. I mean, that was some good comedic relief too. But as soon as that happened, he goes, Oh, I think we're going to need more FBI guys.
0: I think that may actually be the funniest line in the movie for me. I mean, it's just really, so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but again, like I said to you earlier, like the little details, right? It's like the little details. The fact that they named the two FBI agents Johnson at the, and they both have the same last name and they do that for comic effect. like that's not necessary. It doesn't serve the story, but it's these little things that they do that just add that. It just adds a little bit more. I don't even know what the word is. That, that, it's that like dialogue. this quirkiness, it, right?
1: That sets it off. And it's like, it's so violent. And it's got these quirky, funny things. And when they shoot to Argyle, you know, and there's intense action scenes going on then there's argyle on the phone listening to music and and then you know the the um when the swat teams comes up i don't remember this is a weird quirky scene but the swat team's coming up to the uh, nakatomi tower and one of the guys runs through the thorn bush a rose thorn bush and he gets hit by a thorn and he turns around it's like what like why add that and keep in the movie it's just this weird light sense of comedy that uh there's just a quirkiness that I think uh, to shake things up a little bit, McTiernan keeps it in there. But I did want to say the thing in the end, after the helicopter comes out, you're like, this is amazing. You're like, this is it. Then there's more. Right. And then the very closing scene, you know, I love when he comes out, you know, he goes, Hans, he yells, Hans, McLean's coming out there and he's backlit. And the way the camera angle is, we didn't talk about camera angles much, but a lot of the camera angles with Gruber. And then when he comes out there and it's coming from below and he looks like this huge, amazing, powerful creature backlit, you don't even see him. It's just like flames behind him. It's just, it's such a cool scene. And and that whole ending climactic scene is, uh, you know, just stunning. Did I tell you when I actually saw Willis I saw Bruce Willis. I probably tell you this in New York city. I don't know. Tell me again. You may have, we were at, we were at Columbus circle. as was with my family. So this is going back. I think uh, Nick was really young. So it was probably about 12, 13 years ago, at least. And uh, we're at Columbus circle and off in the distance, not far enough, but I'm going to say about uh, 20, 25 feet. There's Willis going up in the elevator, getting on the elevator, right? Just about to walk in the elevator. And I see him and I go, yippee Kaye, yay motherfucker. And he turns and he nods, puts his hand up to me,
0: nods to me and smiles
1: and then gets in the elevator.
0: I mean, talk about a line. I mean, in, in an instant, a line like that, that's said in a movie like this, in an instant became just a iconic line for the rest of the time. yippee Yeah. And right? I came across that Willis thought that was just going to be
1: edited out. He was shocked that that made it in. So that was kind of interesting. I mean, they played up the whole Roy Rogers and Western thing and he's on his own and, you know, Al's a nice little sidekick buddy there. But uh, yeah, I mean, McLean's on his own. It's like gunslinger that uh, even uh, Hans Gruber calls him out as a Rambo. Isn't that weird too? They, they, they reference like modern day movie actors and a real life actor and a movie almost to make the movie feel even more real. Right.
0: So, yeah, it's a little bit meta that they did that, and that wasn't that was way before meta became a thing, right? But like in the late eighties, that was they weren't that self aware. But like the fact that they referenced Schwarzenegger and Stallone and stuff like that in a movie like this is just not something that was ever really done. You see that all the time now, but you don't you don't see it
1: and stuff. like that. And obviously, that. it's an inside joke between all the relationships between McTiernan and Souza and Silver. Obviously, they all have close relationships with all all those actors. And so interesting. Another, another layer, you know, another layer to the movie that just makes it all the better. I mean, it's just, like I said, it's my, my favorite action movie. Cause there's nothing like it before, nothing like it after. I think it's the best action movie of its time. And there hasn't been a better one since, and there won't be, it's just, it's a different action movies today are just entirely different than they were back then
0: what i usually do when we wrap is i always discuss what movie i want you to come back and do so i'm just going to throw this out to you because i know you know this is my favorite movie of all time is turning 55 years old next year and i like to do anniversaries on this little show 2001 a space odyssey is going to be 55 in 2023 i'm just saying that we should uh you know listen we just checked a big box at Die Hard, okay no no shit but like that movie that's a massive box to check dude how many times
1: did we see that in your apartment right and uh, <laughs> the first 45 minutes of that movie not a word is spoken and then it's just a couple guys in monkey suits right and uh, literally it's painting it stills It's not even like action motion pictures it's not moving pictures it's still photography at least the first half hour phenomenal movie man it's uh That'll be a treat. You, there's a list. You know the list for me. Like everybody, I know people had a tough time not doing and were jealous, had some envy there about me doing Die Hard. Look, you keep this off the record, but anytime you do another movie with somebody else, I'm envious. You and I, man, history of all the movies. How You do, you do Pulp Fiction without me, you do, you name it rambo first blood i mean at the time we were dubbing that right there's always there's such between you and i there's so much history of like and and and, and, you know nostalgic and
0: and romance what What i what i always tell everybody is that there needs to be like a personal connection between me and my guest and the film and and that's and i'm i'm very decisive about it and listen i've obviously quote die hard with other people besides yourself but you and i saw it and we have this history about it together. We, we staked out Stop and Shop. There, these are these are things that matter, and that's why you are my guest on that. But 2001, obviously, is, is a film that you and I both relish, and there's nobody else I could remotely think about talking talking to about that film besides Stanley Kubrick, who's no longer with us. So it's going to have to be you, my friend, and uh, we will we will get that it. set up. Yeah, that'll be awesome. I did want to acknowledge one of uh, one of your favorite players as a kid. The NFL lost one of one of the greats this week with the passing of Pittsburgh Steelers icon, Franco Harris. I know he was a big part of your childhood. He was a big part of my, my childhood. Anything you want to say about Franco before we wrap? It took my breath
1: away. You know, it was like, wow. Because it was out of nowhere, it felt like it. He's 72, so he's young. Um, obviously, with the NFL, there's a lot to be told about these early premature deaths and football players. I mean, Mike Webster, another amazing Steeler I grew up with, he died at 50. So, I mean, these guys are dying way too young. Um, but Franco, I mean, God, he, the whole idea that in two days it's the 50th anniversary of the immaculate reception. And that's why the Steelers, uh, obviously NFL coordinated the Steelers and Raiders are playing this weekend and to celebrate that. And there's going to be this whole celebration and, and I'm sure a huge ceremony in Pittsburgh about the, the Matthew reception and the anniversary of it. And, and it's like, literally that's changed. Now the whole feeling of that ceremony and, and, and memory of it. I mean, it's going to be entirely different now because of Franco's passing. And
0: uh, did I ever tell you in, uh, in 2011, I went to Dallas for the Super Bowl at, at Jerry world. And that's, that was the year that the uh, Steelers played. Uh, the Packers. And, um, and I remember we went out to, I was part of like a media trip thing with a bunch of folks from like Rolling Stone, I think. And we, uh, we went to dinner, I think the night before um, the Super Bowl on that Saturday, and we were at some swanky steakhouse in Dallas and Franco walked in. And I, you know, obviously it it would make sense because the Steelers were playing in the game. So I'm sure he was there to see it. And, and I remember he walked into this restaurant and everybody stood up and gave him a round of applause. And obviously I didn't get to say hi to the guy, but I mean, he was maybe four or five tables away, but uh, Franco Harris. And the, that was the kind of respect that guy got that night. Amazing.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. He is. Uh, he was beloved. I mean, the whole city of Pittsburgh. I mean, like I said, this whole celebration, now is going to take on an entirely, completely different meaning. And yeah, he was, he's beloved by fans and the city of Pittsburgh. As a lot of those Steelers were back in the day between the, the you know, steel curtain and all those guys from Lambert to Jack Ham Bradshaw, obviously, um, all those great Swan Stallworth, you name them. I had their, all their jerseys, right. I had about like, <laughs> uh, when I was growing up with you, you had all your Cowboys jerseys, your 20 door set and, uh, sure. I, and Danny white. Right. And I had my install back and I had my Bradshaw and Franco Harris. And I, God, I had uh, probably about eight different Steelers jerseys. I mean, I'd wear one every day of the week, but, uh, yeah, Franco, it's, uh, it's going to be so, instead of celebratory, it's probably sad, bittersweet, maybe, and really
0: sad. Um, so unfortunate timing of it, uh, in general, but, uh, wow. Chief, what can I say? You've been my, uh, you've been my best friend for 40 plus years. I've, I've been through everything with you and, um, too much to list, but, uh, it's been a blast to have you on today. Like I'm glad that you were my last episode of the year. I did that on purpose. Um, I love you, as you know, and uh, this was a lot of fun talking about one of our favorite movies and, and kind of going back in time a little bit. So, so thank you. I really, I really do appreciate you, you joining us. I hope you had a, you had some fun with this. It's a blast, man. Thank you, Chief. And
1: I, I thank you for having me on. Uh, it's uh, been a long time coming where I've been really wanting to be on here with you and just, you know, we, you and I can just chat movies all the time and, and, and reminisce about our childhood and it gets really nostalgic. Uh, That, you know, your audience has to put up with our nostalgia a bit, but, uh, we love talking about looking back and it's, it's, and you know, we love talking movies, man. And that's what we grew up on. We grew up on it in many levels, right. From working in the theaters, living it, and then taking it home on VHS, man. So, yeah,
0: well, listen, everybody, it's been a blast working on this show this year. I've really enjoyed, um, my last six or seven episodes where I sort of pivoted and started focusing more on movies. And I've had, it's been a total joy. It's a lot of work, especially when you've got a full-time job and you got to navigate around that, which is not easy, but I really, really do enjoy doing this. And I sincerely appreciate the kind feedback that so many of you share with me after every episode that you listen to it, it means a lot to me. And um, I thank all of you for your ongoing support. I'll keep making these shows. If you keep listening. So uh, I wish all of you a very happy holiday season. I'll be back in the new year with a whole new slate of films. I already have a list. I'm not sure of the order yet, but obviously 2001 is now on that list. We'll have to figure out a date, Steve. But um, happy holidays, everybody. Thanks for listening.
1: Happy holidays, Chief. Love you, man.
0: You too, buddy.